principles in general, we looked at um, sexuality issues for one week. Last week, we looked at this kind of a potpourri of various controversial issues. Uh, the last thing we're going to look at is a cluster of issues that are around the issue of, of death and dying. Uh, and there, there are several important ones in there. Uh, the book, The uh, Social Principles, began with sort of a global, general statement that has some, some meat in it because in there is death with dignity and the issue of euthanasia. And you know with euthanasia, there's both active, where we would actually do something to bring a person's life to an end, and there's also what's called passive euthanasia, which means you would simply allow the person to die. Uh, and then there'll be suicide and other issues related to this. So here's the opening statement. While we applaud medical science for efforts to prevent disease and illness, and that first word already tells you what? Th there's another shoe that's about to be dropped, you know. While we applaud, on the one hand, on the other hand, we have issues and concerns. For the advances in treatment that extend the meaningful life of human beings, on the other hand, we recognize that every mortal life will ultimately end in death. Death in and of itself, from the Christian perspective, is not a bad thing. Death is never a sign that God has abandoned us, no matter what the circumstances of the death might be. Now, you can drive a truck through that statement. It's an important one. Because you can be thinking suicide. Okay. There is no conceivable circumstance under which God would forsake a person whose life comes to an end, in spite of what has been said you know, in our community several times. As Christians, we must always be prepared to surrender the gift of mortal life and claim the gift of eternal life through the death and restoration of Jesus Christ. This is the central tenet of the Christian faith. We are a resurrection people. We have a resurrection faith. So our closing hymn this morning will be a song of resurrection because for Christians to view death, we always view it in light of that death is not the final word, that there is resurrection. <laughs> Care for dying persons is part of our stewardship of the divine gift of life when cure is no longer possible. We encourage the use of medical technologies to provide palliative care. Any of y'all been through hospice? You know what palliative care is? That is when there's nothing that you can do to extend the person's life or to bring the disease to an end, what you really want to do is basically give them comfort. Uh, and we're very, very good at that these days. So palliative care uh, at the end of life. When life-sustaining treatments no longer support the goals of life and when they have reached their limits. So just because we have the technology to extend life doesn't mean that we should use the technology to extend life. Uh, when life is clearly coming to an end, can we keep a person own life support indefinitely? Sure we can. Is that something we should do? Then the answer would be no. There is no moral or religious obligation to use these when they impose undue burdens or only extend the process of dying. So in view of the resurrection faith, in view of our Christian understanding of death, um, life is more than just biological process. Life is more than just breathing. So just extending breathing indefinitely is not necessarily a goal. Dying persons and their families are free to discontinue treatments when they cease to be a benefit to the patient. And many of us have been there in those moments. We recognize the agonizing personal and moral decisions faced by the dying, their physicians, their families, their friends, and their faith communities.
We urge that decisions faced by the dying be made with thoughtful and prayerful consideration by the parties involved with medical, pastoral, and other appropriate counsel. We urge, we further urge that all persons discuss with their families, their physicians, their pastor counselors, and their wishes uh, for care at the end of life. And that, that is an extremely, if you've been there, that's an extremely powerful conversation. It's also an extremely beneficial conversation. It's, a, it's awkward, but it's very, very, very powerful. And provide advanced directives for such care when they are not able to make these decisions for themselves. When even one, ex when, uh, even when one accepts the inevitability of death, the church and society must continue to provide faithful care, including pain relief, companionship, support, spiritual nurture for the dying person, and the hard work of preparing for death. We encourage and support the concept of hospice care whenever possible at the ending of life, Faithful care does not end at death, but continues during bereavement as well uh, as we care for grieving families. Uh, and then they add this. We reject euthanasia and any pressure upon the dying to end their lives. God has continued love and purpose for all persons, regardless of health. We affirm laws and policies that protect the rights and dignity of the dying. And with that, the opening statement comes to an end. So, thoughts. You've, you've been there. Many of us have been there. Yeah. Well thought out? Issues can see? Yes. That's actually the next topic. There was one, yeah, there is a statement there. The basic the statement is saying what Romans says in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the, God of the, the love of God, neither height nor width, any created thing, not even death. So there, there's that global affirmation of our faith that we are embraced by God's love no matter what. Now, clearly that has implications for suicide, and clearly those are going to come come, in the next thing we're going to look at. There was another hand over here. Uh, Bill? Well, it's a big iceberg out there, not only with the church, but with society. And that's the folks with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. They may be there four or five years. Know not where they are or know do they know what they do. No quality of life. Billions of dollars are being spent in this country to sustain their life. Okay. And how are we going to face that 
from a legal standpoint and from a society standpoint? Well, I know within, because uh, we worked with, uh, Barbara's mother had Alzheimer's, and we worked with hospice with her and the Visiting Nursing Association then. Uh, and I think this is probably even allowed for within what we just read, active euthanasia, that you would do something to bring a person's life to a premature end is rejected categorically. Is that how you all read it? Okay. Even though they say no euthanasia, what is called passive euthanasia, that there's a point where you no longer intervene and you simply allow nature to take its course. You do not keep them hydrated with IVs. Uh, I know in, in Barbara's mother's case, the medications were discontinued. Now, they did keep oxygen on her, and they kept morphine for comfort. But essentially, you did not do anything to extend life. And you could have. You could have forced hydration. You could have forced uh, you know, putting nutrients in the body via IV, and the body may have lasted another week or two. Uh, I know within the medical community, at least that we've worked with, the, the clear directive of the doctor was uh, there was no need to do that. And so we did not. Is that, some of you are in the metal community and some of you are, yeah. I did not see anything in that opening statement that would negate that. There is that one statement that we don't support euthanasia, but then the issue, of course, always, is the definitions. What constitutes euthanasia? Thoughts on that one? That's a tough one. It's a very tough one. And all the evidence indicates we're about to see a tsunami of Alzheimer's. Okay? It's coming. Yeah. And that's just that's just where we are in our society. Several countries have that. Well, several states in the United States have that though. Yeah. If that's a uh, relationship between the family, the church, and the and the law. Uh, it, it's a tough one, Mark. Yeah, and what I heard in the social principles I think is congruent with my own understanding of the medical community is that this is a decision to be made by the family and those most directly involved as to when care needs to shift over to simply being palliative and, you know, and, and to bring them home. Because there's nothing that you can do that, that benefit. There's even a statement in there about you know, extending life, you know, doing stuff just to extend life just for the sake of extending life. Do we have the technology? Yes. Should we? That's an entirely different question. Okay. And most of us probably will face that with somebody we know and love. You know, if you've had a parent that most of us have had who is essentially brain dead or whatever, yeah. I don't think that's a tough decision. Yeah. The person you knew is gone. <coughs> and through living well, I would imagine most people in here have some provision for their spouse to make a decision once the doctor say. There was another hand up. Yes. Sometimes it's hard to define quality of life. Is it eat, you just get up and eat? Is it being able to run around the block? <coughs> um, yeah. What is it? And the mirror question, who decides? Who decides that there's enough quality or there's not enough quality? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, there's a, there's a gray zone there. Okay. If you've ever had somebody that you have to think that, you, you will understand what quality of life yeah. is. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of automatic. It's 
Well, I know, for example, and this is just a few months ago, with Barbara's mother, uh, there's a point where she had lapsed into unconsciousness, had been there for several days, and, and the, the hospice doctor came by and said, we can put an IV in her, and she may li live three or four more days. Or we can keep her comfortable and simply allow nature to take its course. We made the second choice. And his word to us is that's what most families do. Not all. Some will go with the IV, and you know, as, if there's, as long as there's any possibility, you know, and part of it is there's no possibility of recovery, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the case. There are other cases where people have been in comas for decades, <coughs> and have come out. So, no one thing covers everything. So, okay. Let's take it another level. Okay. You are aware. Oh, sorry. Yes. Philosophically, you could argue that. The moment you're born, you're dying. <laughs> so, yeah. And again, that, that's, I think one of the reasons they're saying is it's, it's the family and the, the people most directly involved who have to work through those things. There is no one answer. There is no cookie cutter. Uh, and there, you, know, you have to be very careful about making a statement in advance that fits a particular situation. Okay. Suicide. Are you aware of some of the things that have been said in our, in our community? Not necessarily from our church, but from others. What are some of the things that have been said? Don't get to go to heaven. Go to heaven. Yeah. More direct, go to hell. Do not pass go. <laughs> Do not collect $200. <coughs> Very hard for the family, yeah. Murder. What? Murder. murder of yourself. Unforgivable sin. Okay. Those statements have been made in a variety of contexts. Uh, some of you may remember uh, the funeral of Bob McDonald, who, who many of us knew and loved very much and took his own life. Um, Mark Craig got up in the pulpit, any of y'all there? And did a remarkable thing. He basically, because he knew the culture and he knew that was out there and he knew everybody was thinking that, he basically said, that's a crock. From the Methodist viewpoint, we simply do not believe that. That is incompatible with our understanding of God. And then sat down. You could see a palpable relief in the whole congregation. You know. So this is what the social principles say. And it's, it's nuanced. We believe that suicide is not the way a human life should end. That's a no-brainer. Nobody would desire that. Nobody would want that. Often suicide is the result of untreated depression or of untreated pain and suffering. The key word there, of course, being untreated, raises the question, had they been treated, might the outcome have been different? The church has an obligation to see that all persons have access to needed pastoral medical care and therapy. So there's that, that kind of sense that we would like to do everything we, we could you know, to keep that from, from happening. In those circumstances that lead to loss of self-worth, suicidal despair, and or the desire to seek physician-assisted suicide, 
which I know some medical people tell me that's out there a lot more than you might think, okay? A lot of people end of life will actually have that discussion with their physician. We encourage the church to provide education to address the biblical, theological, and those are important. You know, what is our faith stance on this? Social, ethical issues related to death and dying, including the issue of suicide. United Methodist Theological Seminary courses should also focus on issues of death and dying, including suicide. And I went through in the 70s, and we did not cover that. So I'm assuming that that probably is in the curriculum over there now. A Christian perspective on suicide begins with an affirmation of faith. That nothing, including suicide, separates us from the love of God. And the Ro Romans reference there is actually in the, in the social principles. Therefore, we deplore, pretty strong language, we deplore the condemnation of people who complete suicide. We just reject that. So Mark Craig is, in fact, flat out right. And we consider unjust the stigma that so often falls on surviving family and friends. We encourage pastors and faith communities to address this issue through preaching and teaching. We urge pastors and faith communities to provide pastoral care to those at risk, survivors and their families, and those families who have lost loved ones to suicide. Always seeking, circles back, to remove the oppressive stigma around suicide. The church opposes assisted suicide and euthanasia. And I was not on the committee or anything, but I must it sounds like they're talking about what we would call active euthanasia. So that principle is there. That ought to provoke something. What do you think? How many of you have lost someone? Suicide. I joined the Methodist Church in 1966. Steve O'Kane uh, got me involved in the church. And Steve O'Kane was a very troubled young man who did several suicide attempts. And then freshman year in college did, in fact, kill himself. And I know many of us have been there. We've known people close to us who are important to us um, who've had that experience. We've gone through that. So it's a, it's a horrendous horrendous experience for anybody remotely related to it. So, thoughts? Your first thought is that you're really angry with the person mm -hmm. and you feel guilty for being angry with yeah. the person. It's real conflicted. Let's just accept them as yeah. suicide and it just about kills my husband. Yeah. You're angry, but how can you be angry? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Well, like you've done something or missed yeah. doing something, and of course the mother was the same way. If only I'd seen it, if only, if only, if only. Yeah. It's just terrible. Yeah, it is a terrible thing. There were some other hands. Yes. There, there's formal and informal. I know that um, any of the pastors working with the family would continue. One of the things you know is that after the family leaves, you know, a few days after the funeral is when it really gets, when the house is empty. 
that's when it really, really gets rough. Um, I know that we have a, a Survivors of Suicide group that meets in our church under the pastor care of Barbara. Um, I know a lot of Sunday school classes and, and friends. Uh, I'm just thinking of two or three people I know personally in our church who've taken their own life and the, and the way they have been nurtured and supported. And some of it's formal, most of it's informal. You know, they just, people love and they know that this is going to be a really, really, really hard road. And provide that safety net, yeah. yeah. You know, there's some stereotypes. There, there's suicide is fairly prevalent young adult. Suicide is very prevalent older adult. Suicide can be situational. I know many men in our community commit suicide. It was business, financial, reversal related. When, 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 when your sense of worth is that you're the provider, and when that falls through, uh, tough economy times, increase the number of suicides. Uh, there, there are multiple, multiple reasons. Yeah. Garth? I know uh, Barbara and I both worked with the suicide crisis hotline, you know, decades ago, and I know uh, at the time some of the guidance they gave is, you know, some of it is cognitive. You know, that y what you're considering is a permanent solution to a temporary issue, although it's hard to see beyond that. But you know, letting them know they're not alone, letting them know that you care for them. If any way you can, you can get them help, drive them to, take them to, go by sea. Another piece of it is, is in the end, you cannot be responsible for their life. Uh, because some people will, in fact, no matter what, end their lives. And that's, that's a very difficult thing to deal with. Um, I know that there's, there's stuff out there that would walk us through that. I don't know off the top of my head. Some of you may, in fact, do that, that type of counseling. Do you know what the division is of other mainline Christian denominations on the issue of suicide? I don't officially. I can tell you that several churches in our area, from the pulpit, it has been called an unforgivable sin. And that may not even reflect the official theology of the denomination. That may reflect the theology of the person that's up there. Um, it has been said in our pulpit, but not by anybody from our church. When a guest speaker comes in, 
you have no idea what you're getting. And there's been two cases, <laughs> you, know, you don't. <laughs> By the way, bad idea. <laughs> Today when we celebrate Will Smith's career, I suggest that there are countless people in this congregation whose lives have been saved mm -hmm. through his efforts and love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you feel alone and knowing that you're not. You feel hopeless if there can be some way of communicating hope. It was very hurtful to a lot of people, yeah. Exactly. What, what are the, um, what is the lure about having a pizza? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and what is the success to those people still today? Here's the truth. If you're a pastor working with a family and they want somebody to speak at their loved one's funeral, you're going to say yes. Mm -hmm. Even though that may create, you know, and, and hopefully there's a conversation with the pastor beforehand with some kind of simple guidelines. No, they, they can get up there and disregard everything you've asked and everything they've promised, and that's happened, yeah. But as an act of pastor care for the family, it's their loved one, it's, you know, they are center, it, it's, it's a hybrid. They're involved in the planning of the service, and we have the integrity of it being a Christian service. And those two sometimes don't mesh neatly. Yeah. Well, how, well, the, excuse me, if this young person committed suicide and the minister got up and said that he was going to... Wasn't a minister, I don't think. Oh, it was? I think it was a friend of the family. A friend or something, so yeah. he was going to plot in hell the whole time. I mean, what did they think about why they asked him? I mean, what well, they use it as a reason for an altar call. Do you rededicate your life to Jesus and it won't happen to you? And the family thought they didn't know he was going to say that. So the family must have been just absolutely devastated. I mean, and that that happens. That happens, yeah. Not officially. S certain individuals do. <laughs> what's what's the, the position of the Catholic Church on suicide? Historically, you could not be ba uh, buried in a Catholic cemetery uh, because it was considered to be a, a, a mortal sin. Now, I do not know of current, some of you may more, know more than I know about current Catholic theology. Karen, has it changed? Okay, I, I has not changed? Okay, yeah. So you could not be buried in consecrated ground. Okay. Um, and that would be from, from within. The, of course, clearly that's not our theology. That's not our understanding. But, you know, there are different views. Uh, in the back, yes.
Well, and, there, and there's some mythology there. For example, uh, one of the things you're trained when you do suicide counseling is it, the common sense says don't bring up suicide. It'll make them think of suicide. No. If they're thinking of suicide, they're thinking of suicide. So you're bringing it up might give them permission to talk about it. So, and there is some of it's a little counterintuitive. Somebody? And that's why there's intervention and take people to treatment, to counseling. Remember that, okay, Blake. Um, one thing you hear a lot more about these days, I think we've all seen it, is a snippet talking to Freddie McGurder among the youth. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you know of or if the church offers any programs that are specifically tailored to young persons that may find themselves considering the thought, seriously. Not formally. I think what we have is people, uh, Bill? Gotcha. Yeah. I would assume in the youth department, you're very aware of this. We're very aware. We'll meet, I'm going to meet, Jeff. We'll meet with uh, a youth, and if it's, it's very obvious to us, then we get in contact, or we will get in contact uh, with a couple uh, licensed psychologists and psychiatrists. There's one who's actually on staff with the Center for Youth Mental yeah. Health. Um, and then we follow up with them. Yeah. We have a very uh, I know, know for many years, the prayer request cards are watched very closely. Because a lot of times, uh, a person who is determined to kill themselves probably will do it. Yeah. Most of the time, that's not true. They don't want to die. Mm -hmm. They're just hurting. And so they'll, they'll send little signals out through a prayer request or whatever. Yeah. And if we're paying attention, we can pick up on that and, and act on their behalf. Yeah. There has been, there has been, the statement has been made, there's an epidemic yeah. of suicide. That statement's been made about our community mm -hmm. several times and over several years, yeah. Why is it, why are there so many more young people today so troubled or talking about suicide? Whether, when, when I grew up, we were all kind of happy. I mean, we were... <laughs> <laughs> Jane, be glad you grew up when you did. <laughs> it's, it's much more complicated. It's much more pressure cooker. The other thing, though, I think we're also more aware of it. Yeah. But, I, you know, for example, people, people in the justice system say more than you would think the number of fatal accidents involving an individual alone 
or actually suicide. could be disguised suicides. So a lot of that may have been going on. We simply were not aware of it. If there's no note, you don't think of that. Okay. Uh, one more, and then we're going to move on. And honestly, there is. Any of you who worked with hospice know this. The hospice doctor will tell you that morphine, which can ease the pain, there's a point where the pain gets so much that the amount of morphine you give them to ease the pain will, in fact, terminate their breathing. And that is done all the time. Okay. So, um, again, that's... I think that's a different category of the the uh, euthanasia type stuff, but that's that that that's fairly common. Now, remember the purpose of the social principles to create conversation. <laughs> okay, uh, death penalty. Uh, a couple more things, real quick. Uh, by the way, you know what the you know what the position of the church is? Are we for or against? We're against. We believe the death penalty denies the power of Christ to redeem, restore, or transform all human beings. The United Methodist Church is deeply concerned about crime, so we're not saying we take crime lightly, and value uh, any life taken by murder or homicide. So, not, so it's not taking a position against the victims. We believe all human life is sacred, created by God, and therefore we must see all human life as vibrant, as significant, and valuable. When governments implement the death penalty, capital punishment, then the life of the convicted person is devalued and all possibility of change in that person's life ends. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the possibility of reconciliation, reconciliation with Christ comes through repentance. This gift of reconciliation is offered to all individuals without acceptance, gives all life new dignity and sacredness, for this reason, we oppose the death penalty, capital punishment, and urge its elimination from all criminal codes. Uh, that one position is sterile. Now, throw into that the more recent development of the number of people in death row who uh, the DNA evidence has now proven that they were, in fact, innocent. So, again, very complicated type of thing. interesting dichotomy where our faith lies and how it aligns with everything mm -hmm. that There's the whole movement called restorative justice. I know Barbara's very active in that. We have a very active prison ministry that you know, 
goes to Palage and some of the other prisons and stuff. Yeah, again, very complicated. Uh, a lot of people I know support the death penalty. A lot I know very opposed to it. The church, though, uh, officially, pretty straightforward. Yeah, you want to keep the door for redemption open theologically, and then practically, uh, if you ever exercise the death penalty, if it were ever proven they were innocent, you can't go back and do a do-over. So, there, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. Well, sociopathic personalities. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, and then the issue is they don't need to be on the street. Right, right. The question is, do they need, you know, that's a different, that's a different issue. Okay. Uh, genetic uh, technology, real quick. Uh, because uh, our science now opens new doors for both ending life, starting life, or playing with life. Okay. <laughs> The responsibility of humankind to God's creation challenges us to deal carefully with the possibilities of genetic research and technology. Now, you're not going to get a position that like opposes all stem cell research like we had a debate a few years ago. You don't find that here, but, but the, the idea is here, be careful. We welcome the use of genetic technology for meeting fundamental human needs of health, a safe environment, and adequate food supply. So I doubt you're going to argue we should not genetically manipulate corn. Your corn's been manipulated. Deal with it. Okay. <laughs> we oppose the cloning of humans. Uh, we have the technology. Okay. We don't know of anybody that's done it, but we have the technology. There, not that much difference between cloning a cow, a sheep, and a human being. Technology's been there for decades. And the genetic manipulation of the gender of an unborn child. Can we do that? Yes, we can opposed to it. Because of the effects of genetic technologies on all life, we call for effective guidelines and public accountability to safeguard against any action that might lead to abuse of these technologies, including political and military ends. Could we create the super soldier? There are those who advocate that. You know, and I'm, I would not be surprised if somewhere research has not been done on that. You know, stronger, faster, more efficient use of oxygen, you know, think about, you know, that has some possibilities. We recognize that cautious, well-intentioned use of genetic technologies may sometimes lead to unanticipated harmful consequences. Consult the latest science fiction movie that you watched, okay? <laughs> human gene therapies can produce changes that cannot be passed on. Uh, human gene technologies that cannot, or that, that produce changes that cannot be passed on to offspring, somatic or body therapy, should be limited to the alleviation of suffering caused by disease. In other words, even if it's a, a <coughs> manipulation that will not be inherited by the next generation, only benefits that person, even there, we need some limits. Genetic therapies for eugenic? I had to look that up, okay. What does eugenic mean? Improved, yeah. Selective breeding. Mendel did it with peas. We can do it with people. Okay, we have the technology. Uh, 
or that may produce waste embryos are deplored. Genetic data of individuals and their families should be kept secret and held in strict confidence. Can you think of a reason why that might be true? Do you want your insurance company to know what you're genetically predisposed towards? Has that been a debate that's out there? You better believe that's a debate that's out there. Unless confidentiality is waived by the individual or by his or her family, or unless the collection and use of genetic identification data is supported by an appropriate court order. Because its long-term effects are uncertain, we oppose genetic therapy and re that results in changes that can be passed on to, you know, germline. germline. Uh, it could, you know, change you, that changes your children, changes your grandchildren. A genetic mutation, but one that's done by manipulation would be opposed to that. That's an interesting one. That's something in the world I grew up in, this wasn't even a possibility. This section would not have been there. Welcome to the brave new world. Karen? Now, did you hear that that was being eliminated? Because I know we're working on that. What? That would pass through the next generation. So this would be not allowed. So if someone had uh, cystic fibrosis, and we could introduce in the, you know, into a virus that would go in and recode their genes, they would not have that, your read would be this would not be allowed. Doesn't seem right. Yeah. Mac, I know you do a lot with medical stuff. Is there, are you aware of any kind of stuff going on out there with this? Because it clearly said to cure a disease, okay. And I know that I know the medical community is, is you know, frantically working on that. Cancer, you know, uh, any type of inherited disease, and you know, common sense would say that doing away with that. I mean, how could you object to that? Yeah, Blake. Yeah, this whole area is leapfrogging so, so quickly. Very difficult. Okay. You enjoyed the social principles? <laughs> we have complete sets back there, all of it. Now, I want to, in one minute, give you everything you need to know about Methodism, okay? <laughs> Eight weeks, one minute, okay. We are from a distinct branch of Christianity, the English, Anglican Church. Technically, we are not Protestant, Catholic. Protestant, third way, Anglican. It is a mixture of the two. The via, one characteristic of that is the via media, which means both an embracing of the breadth of the faith and a certain vagueness on doctrine intentionally. We don't want to nail it down too far. 200 years later, the Wesleys uh, in the Industrial Revolution are born into that. Wesley embraces the Catholic spirit, which is in spirit the via media. 
He affirms mainstream Christianity. He embraces the essentials, and as Methodists don't add anything. We also embrace that breadth and that openness. Remember our, our motto, open hearts, open minds, open doors. That's our official tagline. Wesley would say a church that's truly Catholic, truly evangelical, truly formed. Truly evangelical means Lutheran. Truly reformed means Presbyterian. In the world stage at that time, those are the three choices. Wesley said yes, all three. <laughs> Fourth branch, early Eastern church. There was a renaissance driven by the Protestant Reformation of interest in the early church. Here was the theory. Over the centuries, the church had become corrupt. Hence, we're going to be Protestants. We're going to reform the church. When was the church pure? At its earliest form. So there was a renaissance in particularly the Eastern church. Wesley was schooled in that. He was a scholar of that. We stress grace. We stress salvation as a process. In today's world, the Eastern Orthodox church and the Methodists share this. That's why we stress sanctification and holiness. Synergy. God and us working together. <coughs> Armenianism. If we're going to work with God, we've got to have free will. There's a fifth branch, not a branch, but we have to throw it in somewhere, the pietist who stressed experience, heartfelt faith, that it's not just beliefs. Remember Wesley, not that your mind be with my mind, but if your heart be with my heart, give me your hand. That is pietism. His mother was a pietist. Uh, vital piety, Christian assurance. The pietistic tradition also stressed practical living of the faith. Wesley talked about practical Christianity. We would refer to it as piety. Piety has to do with the outward expression of your faith. Wesley had a unique way of approaching belief. Wesley and quadrilateral, that word is gone. We don't use it anymore. We use scripture is primary, but we do believe scripture must be interpreted using tradition and reason, which he inherited from the Anglican Church, and experience, which he inherited from his mother and from the pietistic tradition. Add to this a very, very deep concern from day one to the social issues of the day. Throw them all into a blender, hit frap. You have Mr. Wesley, and you have the United Methodist Church. As expressed in the Articles of Religion, which we handed out to you, part two of the Book of Discipline, and as expressed in the Social Principles, part five of the Book of Discipline. You've now read two parts of the Book of Discipline, the more interesting of the two, by the way. What? Well, wait, remember the Ronco commercial? There's more, okay. Ted Campbell, starting next week, is going to do four weeks on the sacraments, two on baptism, two on communion. In the middle of all that, Susan's going to talk about the mother of Methodism, Susanna Wesley, who was a pietist and from whom Wesley got his methodic nature. Uh, and thank you for doing that, Susan, uh, because Ted Campbell will be at his high school reunion that week. And then Dean Lawrence, now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the Methodist Church. We said, Bill, you've got the final word on Methodism, so whatever you want to do, that will be the eighth. 